Section 21 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Manalakis. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter 15, Part 2. The road they took leading them some way to the north of the Alma, it was only after they had proceeded a considerable distance that they came to the part of the ground where the English had chiefly fought. On the eastern side was the burned village of Bourlioc. The hillside was covered with the corpses of the men of the infantry regiments, intermingled with the bodies of the gray-coated, helmeted Russians. The cries of the wounded soon attracted those who came to succor them, and the seamen under Higson were speedily laden with wounded men. After the wounded had been inspected by a surgeon, and pronounced fit to be removed, the party set off to return to the boats, while Tom and Archie made their way up the hill in the track the guards had taken, Tom looking out anxiously on every side in search of his brother, whom he dreaded to find among the killed. They met numerous parties of soldiers, with a few sailors, who had already landed, some carrying wounded men towards the village on the banks of the Alma, the houses of which had been turned into hospitals others going in search of fresh burdens. The work of burying the dead, who thickly strewed the ground in those parts where the fight had raged the hottest, had not yet commenced. The living men had first to be cared for. Here and there surgeons of the army, as well as many of the navy, who had landed even before the battle was over, were attending to the more desperate cases requiring immediate aid. The Russians received the same attention as the English, and were at once carried off to the hospitals. Some poor fellows lay under the walls and other shelter, where they had crawled after being wounded. The larger number were found where they fell. Tom was in a hurry to push on, while he looked about on every side for the uniform of the guards. From all quarters came groans and cries, and the midshipmen could not resist stopping to afford some relief to the sufferers. Several Russians lay with their heads placed on the corpses of their brother soldiers. Some had their arms others their legs, blown away by round shot. One poor fellow was still alive, though both his thighs had been thus broken. He had the strength to point to his lips, and Tom, kneeling by his side, poured some water down his throat. The dying man cast a grateful look at the young officer, but before they left him, he expired. Several had their heads blown off. Others, who had their faces carried away, presented the most dreadful spectacle. At length Tom exclaimed, "'There are some guardsmen!' Several high bearskin caps marked the spot to which he pointed. The first men they came to were dead, but higher up the hill they saw more. One of them was alive, with a bad wound in his side, and a shot through his arm. He was apparently bleeding to death. Archie produced his bandages, while Tom poured some brandy down his throat. It contributed to revive him. Tom inquired eagerly if he had seen Captain Rogers. "'Yes, sir!' was the answer. He was marching on with the regiment when I fell. Having done their best to stop the blood flowing from the man's wound, Tom and Archie hurried forward. Farther to the right, the ground was still more thickly covered with corpses. On examining them, Tom observed that, though many were guardsmen, they did not belong to his brother's regiment. Several officers lay dead. Numerous Russians mingled with the British. The greater number appeared to have been shot by bullets but several had been killed by the bayonet or sword, and exhibited ghastly wounds. Apparently the wounded officers had been removed, for none were seen alive. 
numerous helmets, knapsacks, and other accoutrements thrown away by the Russians, together with the greater number of their dead, showed that they had been put to flight by the victorious advance of the British. "'This is terrible,' cried Tom. "'I had often pictured a battlefield, but I had not fancied it anything like so horrible as this. "'It must be worse to the poor fellows who lie scattered about us, "'suffering fearful tortures from their wounds,' answered Archie, "'with the prospect of dying from them, or even if they recover, being maimed for life.' "'I hope poor Sidney is not among them,' exclaimed Tom for the twentieth time. "'I can't help thinking more of him than of anyone else.' Making inquiry of some soldiers, whom they at length met with stretchers carrying the wounded men they had picked up, Tom asked if they could tell him over what ground the guards had passed. "'You must keep farther to the left,' was the answer. "'You will come upon some dead islanders, and they are just beyond them.' The bonnets of the Highlanders were soon discovered, and not far off the tall bearskins showed where the guards had fought. The midshipmen, however, made but slow progress, for they could not help stopping to relieve those who required their aid, both friends and foes, till Archie had used up all his bandages, and their spirits and water were nearly expended. As Tom had not found Sidney, his spirits rose with the hope that, at all events, he might have escaped being killed. The enormous number of Russian dead, who were now seen covering the plain, showed the part of the ground where the last desperate conflict had taken place. Whole ranks of the enemy had fallen under the withering fire of the guards and highlanders. In one spot they came upon an entire line of Russians, every man of whom had been shot down apparently at the same moment. Indeed, far as the eye could reach on either side, the plain was thickly strewn with the dead." At length, a long line of upright figures was seen arrayed on the left, with numerous banners waving above their heads, and horsemen moving to and fro. The red hue on the left showing where the victorious soldiers of England stood, halted on the battlefield, while on the right appeared the masses of the French army, with the Turkish troops who had marched forward to their support. They occupied the ground on which they were to bivouac before advancing again in pursuit of the flying foe. The midshipmen made their way towards the troops of the left, and were able, by looking at the lofty bearskins of the guards, to find out the regiment to which Sidney Rogers belonged. Almost breathless with eagerness, Tom inquired for his brother. "'He is there,' said a sergeant, pointing to a spot where a group of officers stood together, eagerly discussing the events of the day. Tom, unable to restrain his feelings, gave a shout of joy, in which Archie joined him. As they hurried forward, Sidney advanced to meet them, and they were soon shaking him heartily by the hand and congratulating him on his escape and the victory he had contributed to win. "'I am thankful to have come out of it unhurt,' said Sidney, "'especially when I hear of the number of officers who have been killed, "'between twenty and thirty at all events, and not far short of a hundred wounded.' Tom then gave Jack's message and delivered a case containing a few luxuries brought from the ship. The midshipmen could not, however, remain long, as they had received orders to return at night, and the day was now rapidly closing. They were brave youngsters, but they had no wish to be compelled to make their way over the battlefield in the darkness, amid the dying and the dead. Wishing Sidney goodbye, they rapidly retraced their steps. As they once more descended the hill, their ears were assailed with cries and groans. But as they had no longer any means of assisting the unhappy sufferers, they hurried on. At the foot of the hill they reached the road which ran along the bank of the river, having to pass in their way close to the smoldering ruins of the village which had been set on fire at the commencement of the battle. 
Here it was supposed that several English as well as Russian riflemen had perished while engaged with each other, the flames having spread round them before they had time to make their escape. It was already dark when one of the tornado's boats came to take them off. Neither of them were very much inclined to talk of what they had seen, and even Jack, when they got on board, had some difficulty in gaining more information from them than the fact that they had found Sydney safe and well. After a glass or two of wine, however, Jack drew forth an account of the scenes they had witnessed on the battlefield. Tom often shuddered as he described the fearful condition of the wounded and the numbers of dead they had seen. Next morning they were all to rights and were ready to go in charge of a fresh party of seamen, who were sent on shore to bring off more of the wounded. All day long the seamen were engaged in collecting the wounded men and carrying them to the hospitals, or bringing them off to the ships, while parties, told off from the different regiments, were employed in burying the dead, generally in large pits, into which friends and foes were tumbled without much ceremony. All the time bodies of cavalry were kept patrolling on the left to guard the people employed in the service from the attacks of the Cossacks, who were seen hovering in the distance, ready to pounce down upon any unwary stragglers. As soon as Jack had received on board as many wounded officers and men as he could accommodate, he proceeded to Constantinople to place them in the hospitals which had been got ready for their reception. Several died on the voyage, some of their wounds and some of cholera, which killed many officers and men after the battle. Jack was eager to get back again to see what was going forward. Hopes had been entertained that the Allies would at once enter Sebastopol, but the news had reached Constantinople that, instead of doing so, they had marched round the city and had posted themselves on its southern side, the English having occupied the harbor of Balaclava, while their army had taken up a position on the ground above it, extending towards the fortifications of Sebastopol. The tornado was still steaming at full speed across the Bosporus, when, soon after dawn, though still out of sight of land, a loud booming of guns came from the northward over the calm water. "'There's another furious battle going forward,' said the first lieutenant to the commander, who had just come on deck. "'I wish we were there. Can the fleet be engaged?' "'I very much doubt that the Russians will have ventured out of their harbor,' answered Jack. "'I suspect, rather, that the Allies have commenced the bombardment of the city. "'The last account stated that they were busy preparing for it, "'and I think it probable that the admirals will take the fleet in to engage the sea batteries.' They will not do much against those stone walls unless they are complete shams, observed Higson. However, we shall be there before long, and if there is an honest battle at sea going on, I hope we shall be in time to take part in it. Of course, there was great excitement on board, everyone looking out eagerly for the land. Surmises of all sorts were made as to what was going forward. The engineers did their best to urge the steamer along, but the wind was so light that the sails were wholly useless. Billy Blueblazes and Dicky Duff, who were somewhat jealous of Tom and Archie having been on shore, were eager to be there to see the fun, as they called it. "'I can tell you, fellows, that it is no fun at all,' said Tom, who had become unusually grave since he had visited the battlefield of the Alma. "'I have got a brother there, and in all probability he is in the midst of the fight.' "'And if the fleets are engaged, I have got a cousin who is as dear to me as a brother,' observed Archie and I don't want any harm to happen to him. You youngsters talk glibly of fighting, but let me hear what you have to say about it when you have seen the thing in reality. It is a necessary evil, but an evil notwithstanding. 
the younger midshipmen laughed and declared it was just what they had come to see for. So did we, too, said Tom, but only because it's our duty to fight to protect our country. Not that I can see that we forward that object by coming out here to attack the Russians. Soon afterwards, land, land, was heard from the masthead, adding to the excitement of all on board. At length, the high cliffs of the Chersonese appeared in sight the thunder of the guns as the ship advanced, increasing in loudness. Now the fleet could be seen coming forward from the roads off the Katcha River to the north. No sails were set, as the ships had either their own steam power or were moved by steamers lashed alongside. The French fleet are leading, observed Jack to Higson. It is evident, then, that their destined position is the southern end of the line, and that our ships are to attack Fort Constantine and the other forts on the north side of the harbor. Slowly the proud ships glided onwards, but not a shot was fired from them. They were still out of range of the forts. It was already near one o'clock in the afternoon. In the French division, thirteen ships could be counted, two of them carrying the Turkish flag. Onward they glided in admirable order, still preserving perfect silence. To my mind, observed Higson, they would be likely to do much more good if they were farther in and it is my belief that so they would be if they had English captains to fight them. Probably the French admiral is afraid of getting his ships on shore were he to stand in closer, observed Jack, who held the French in more respect than did his first lieutenant. At length, as the French ships came within range, the Russian forts opened their fire, but still no reply was made. The whole French squadron had now, one by one, anchored at exact distances from each other, extending more than halfway across the harbor. Then the signal was given, and the roar of six hundred guns broke the silence which had hitherto prevailed, the dense clouds of smoke which arose almost concealing them from sight. At the same moment, the English flagship was seen to throw out a signal, when three of the English steam frigates, which had been standing inshore, commenced firing away at the northern forts. Another signal presently went up, and the Agamemnon was seen gliding on at more rapid speed than hitherfore towards the shore, some little distance to the north of Fort Constantine, the nearest point which a shoal running off from the land would allow her to reach. A gallant little steamer, the Circassian, was observed leading the way, fearless of the shot which the guns of the fort threw at her. As the Agamemnon passed the Sans Perel, which had been ahead of her, hearty cheers resounded from their crews, and then both commenced firing, clouds of smoke quickly enveloping them and assisting to baffle the gunners of the two batteries on the high ground above them. Meantime, the Britannia, Trafalgar, Vengeance, Queen, Rodney, and Bellerophon were proceeding southward in order to complete the line across the harbor, while the Sans Perel, London, Arasusa, and Albion took up positions to the northward of the Agamemnon. Not till afterwards, of course, did Jack hear of the gallant conduct of Mr. Ball in command of the little steam-tender Circassia, which was seen ahead of the Agamemnon, taking soundings for her and leading her close up to the shoal. Sir Edmund told him that his ship would probably be sunk and undertook to have his boats in readiness to pick up him and his crew should such an event occur. As the tender moved ahead of the great ship, the lead line was struck out of the leadsman's hands, but another line was immediately found, and the little vessel continued her course. Though she received nine shots in her hull, the leadsman was the only man wounded on board. Having performed her duty, she steamed off out of harm's way. The Agamemnon was, however, so well placed to the northwest 
that the rear guns only of the fort could be brought to bear on her, and as she was much nearer in than the enemy expected, most of their shot struck her masts and rigging. So close was the sans pareil to her stern that the ship's foremost guns could not at first be fired. This made it necessary for her to haul off, but it was only to return to render her able support to the Agamemnon. The greater number of the ships were now hotly engaged, well nigh twelve hundred guns firing rapidly away at the various forts, and crumbling the upper works of the nearest to pieces. But still, all the time, the iron shower sent by the Russians came crashing on board the ships of the Allies, sending many a brave seaman to his account, and wounding a far greater number. "'The Admiral is signalizing us,' exclaimed Higson. "'We are to run alongside the Briton and carry her into action.' No sooner had he uttered the words than a loud cheer arose from the crew. In a short time, having obeyed the order she had received, they were where they had longed to be, in the line of battle, under the enemy's fire, the Briton having, as was the case with many of the other ships, landed a considerable number of her people to join the naval brigade on shore. A portion of the Tornado's crew were called on board to assist in working her guns. Happy did those consider themselves who were thus employed. Among the officers were Mr. Mildmay and Tom and Archie. As they were stationed on the upper deck, they could occasionally see, when the dense wreaths which encircled the combatants blew by, what was going forward. Mr. Mildmay stood as cool as usual, every now and then pulling out his notebook and making notes in it. "'I really believe,' said Tom to Archie, laughing, "'that he's writing a poetical description of the battle. Perhaps it's a song to be called The Battle of Sebastopol. There we lay all that day at stone walls a-blazing away.' "'I wonder when the Russians intend to give in. It doesn't seem much like it at present,' observed Archie. I expected that we should sail up the harbor and sink their ships. They've done that already themselves, right across the mouth. I heard the first lieutenant tell the master so, said Tom. I only wish that they were afloat, and that we were fighting them instead of these forts, observed Archie. When we have knocked them to pieces, I don't see what good they will do us. Why, of course, to help the soldiers on shore to get into the place, answered Tom. These remarks, which were made at intervals between the firing of their guns, were cut short by a shot killing two of the crew of one of the guns under Tom's command. He had to summon others to take their places. After this he felt very little inclination to talk, nor indeed had he much opportunity of doing so. The position of those who remained on board the steamer was very trying. They had nothing to do, but were tolerably secure from damage, while the enemy shot went flying over their heads. Hour after hour the battle continued to rage, the troops on shore being hotly engaged with the batteries turned towards them, the thundering roar of their guns answering to those of the ships. Never, perhaps, in the same space of time had so many round shot and shells been flying through the air. Little more could be seen of the ships in line across the harbor's mouth. The French remained stationary, but some of the English frequently moved their positions to the support of Sir Edmund Lyons and the inshore squadron which were enduring the brunt of the battle, exposed as they were to the tremendous fire from Fort Constantine and other batteries. Now flames were seen to burst forth from the Queen, when a steamer taking her in tow she stood off to extinguish them. Sometime afterwards the Albion was seen to be on fire, fearfully mauled and unable to fire a shot, with the risk of drifting on shore. She also stood off, helped by the steamer attending her.
the Rodney was now seen standing in to support the Agamemnon when she took the ground. And though exposed to a tremendous fire, she continued fighting her guns. It seemed almost impossible that she should escape destruction, but she still kept firing away till, two steamers going to her assistance, she at length got clear. Not till darkness came on did the battle cease, when the ships returned to their anchorage. Jack was thankful to find that Murray and the midshipmen had escaped, though five of his own crew and many more of the Britons had been killed. The next morning the butcher's bill, as Joss Green called it, was made out, when it was found out that forty-four British seamen had lost their lives, and that two hundred and sixty-six had been wounded, while the Albion and Arsusa had been so knocked about in their hulls and rigging that the Admiral sent them off to Malta to be repaired. The French ships presented a still more disabled appearance, and had lost altogether in killed and wounded under two hundred men. Then came the question, what had been done, and the opinion generally was that, although a good many of the Russians might have been killed, no essential damage had been done to the forts, and that it would be wiser in the future for the ships to let them alone. I suppose the work of the fleet is pretty well over, said Murray to Jack, who had gone on board the Briton, unless we have to attack other places along the coast. You will probably be sent on that service, and I confess I envy you. I hope we shall, was the answer, though I am afraid that at present we shall be employed as a dispatch boat. I should like to see what is going forward on shore, and shall be glad if I can take a turn of duty with the naval brigade. But I have very little hopes of that. End of section 21